Okay, just as a, I have a real quick introduction here as far as uh, um, to give us a little bit of context. Uh, Peter wrote, naturally wrote this book as he, as, as uh, you can tell, sort of tell by the name. I mean, that's no real deep revelation there. But he was trying to equip the Christians, his readers, to, to be able to face what was, was going to come to them. He was going to teach them how to prepare themselves for life in this world. And there's something that we're going to see in this text, something very, a very, very important principle as we go through here. What you believe about history affects what you believe about the future. What you think, how you think the earth started affects how you think it's going to end. And both of those things affect how you live right now. Peter wants to remind his readers that the unbelievers of this world will oppose them every chance they get. And do we not see that in our, in our day and age? And it's been that way down through history. If you're going to stand for the Lord Jesus Christ and live for him and, and let everybody know, I'm going to live for Christ, you're going to have a lot of people that don't like you. Not because they don't, not because you're a nasty person or a mean person, but because they're in rebellion against God. And you stand for the Lord, you stand for God, and so you represent God before them. So, Peter's readers, which you know what includes us, have you anybody, has anybody read Peter's book? Well, you're about to today. If you haven't, I'm sure everybody has, or I would hope so anyway. We need to be prepared, just like the first century Christians, need to be prepared with the truth to keep from following lies. In the first seven verses, we see the opposition to the truth. It says, this is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Peter here gives us one of his primary motives for writing this letter. Actually, both of his letters. Because it's a very easy thing for Christians. Because we are living in the world. Are, are we living in the world? Now, we're amongst the world. But we should be somewhat different 
from the world. As a matter of fact, in speaking to a couple of uh, folks uh, this morning, reviewing her testimony, and that's what part of what brought them to Christ, seeing that these other Christians were significantly different. What is that difference? And that really should be, that's what the Lord Jesus was meaning by saying, you are the salt of the world, you are the light of the world. You need to salt the world. You, we need to be that preservative, that, that, that uh, taste enhancer, so to speak, to draw people to him. But it's a very easy thing for us as Christians to be swayed away from the practical foundations of our faith. And we'll talk a little bit more about that later. But it's when we get drawn away, we get sucked into that which is false. Paul taught, warned Timothy to uh, beware of science falsely so-called. And that, that word that he uses means false knowledge. What somebody says, this is absolutely true. Well, is it? What did he say? What did Paul also say? Test all things, hold fast to that which is good. Very important principle. But church history is filled with people leaving the truth to follow human ideas. About a hundred years ago, just, just a couple examples came to mind as I was, as I was going through this. About a hundred years ago was the heyday of uh, a doctrine that was referred to as post-millennialism. And the whole idea behind that was that the church is going to go out and, and save the whole world and everybody in the whole world will be saved for a thousand years and then the Lord Jesus is going to come back when we've made this, this world a better place. Well, um, that actually came out of the modernistic philosophies of the day that were very, very uh, positive and very... Uh, uh, they were a positive expression of what humans could accomplish because they are, they are well into the machine age and all these new inventions and new things were coming out. You know, the steam engine and the autom automobile and the airplane and, and all these wonderful human inventions that, that, that we were coming up with. And everybody was excited. And as a matter of fact, post-millennialism was great for missionary endeavor. In fact, I was, yesterday I was singing a song, an old song that came out of this whole thing. There's a royal banner given for display to the soldiers of the king. And the, and the, whole, the uh, whole idea of the song was we're going to go out and save the world and bring in the kingdom. Well, the un, there's a couple unfortunate events uh, that happened during the 20th century called World War I and World War II and uh, the Cold War and uh, the threat of nuclear destruction 
And by the end, actually by the end of 1945, post-millennialism was pretty dead. But before that, another doc other doctrines were brought into the, uh, into the believers that they thought, well, we can get people saved by selling indulgences. It was a few hundred years before, before uh, post-millennialism, and that's what uh, Martin Luther objected so strongly about, the selling of indulgences. We can get people into heaven by buying these, this, these pieces of paper. Well, Martin Luther did, he had 95 theses against those, uh, that, that practice, nailed up against the, the Wittenberg door. But we can go, actually go by, as far back as into the New Testament period. The various authors of the New Testament wrote against false doctrines that were brought into the church again by human ideas. Some of the Corinthians didn't believe in the resurrection. And Paul dedicated the entire chapter 15 in, in the book of 1 Corinthians to fighting against the Greek idea and that was strictly a Greek philosophy because they had a basis of saying well, your soul is inherently good, but your body is inherently evil. Therefore, once your soul leaves your body, it'll never want to return. Therefore, the resurrection, Jesus' resurrection, was just a spiritual resurrection. And Paul said, no way. If Christ be not resurrected, you're still on your sins. But even back, the very first book, the very first epistle written in the New Testament, maybe even the first book, is the book of Galatians. And what's that, what's that book about? The only way you can get saved is to get circumcised. You have to follow the Jewish law. And where did that come from? Human ideas. From legalists coming into the church. So the church constantly has been fighting the idea of human ideas being brought in to influence what we believe. But what source does Peter want us to have for doctrine, for truth, for our beliefs? Well, what does he say? That you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Or if you want to read it from the King James, that you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and of the commandment of the apostles of the Lord and, of the Lord and Savior. While Peter may be thinking about specific prophecies of the return of Christ, I believe his point is a little more general than that because he doesn't specify here what he's talking about. He's, he's speaking broad, in broader terms. And he's thinking about 
Well, he mentions the words of the earlier prophets, which they had in copies of the Hebrew scriptures. And he also mentions the, the commandments of the apostles, and that makes up the New Testament. So what is, he, what is he telling his readers to base their beliefs on? The Word of God, the Bible as we know it. He, Peter's first exhortation in this passage is to remind his readers to get their beliefs out of the Word of God rather than the words of men. What the Bible plainly states is true. When we interpret it properly and believe what it says, we believe the truth. However, the Bible, just, just as a, a balance here, one of the things I like to do is uh, with, every, with everything that I believe, I try to make sure that it is uh, uh, balanced. I've used the illustration before of, of a, uh, a drum head. It has to be pulled tight in every direction. And so if you get, if you get your doctrine... If you hold on to one doctrine without having some sort of, uh, you might say, con not contrary principle, but opposing principle, you can get very imbalanced very quickly. The Bible does not contain everything that is true. The Bible is truth, and everything that it says is true. But it does not include everything that is true. For example, it doesn't explain how tree sap rises in the trunk of a tree. It does not explain how the binding nuclear forces in the, middle, in the nucleus of an atom can, can alter the rate of, of nuclear decay. So there's a lot that we can understand through scientific endeavor. There's a lot of truth that we can gather through true understanding of science. True observational science can augment our knowledge of the truths God has made. However, true observational science can never contradict what God has written. Because remember, true observational science, we're observing what God has already done. The Bible is what God has written. God is not going to contradict in one area what he has plainly written in another. Now, interpretations, here's another balance interpretations of observations, particularly when you get into historical science, and, and interpreting fossils and rocks and things that we didn't see how they, start, they came to be, 
but we have to interpret. They're, they're obviously there. I mean, fossils are all obviously there. How did they get there? Well, we have to interpret them, but we didn't see how they got there. When you have a fossil bone, are you looking at the present or are you looking at the past? You're looking at the present. Unless you're Jules Verne and you have a time machine. You can't go back in the past. You, you are looking at this, at this fossil in the present. You can see what sort of minerals it's made out of. You can see its shape and if there's if it's in relationship to other fossil, fossils. But you're looking at the present. You're not looking at the past. You have to interpret the present to try to understand the past. And that's where you get into problems with presuppositions. And we'll get more into that in a little bit. Now, why is this all important to know? Why do I have to, to think about all this? Why does Peter want his readers well-versed in the scriptures? Look at verse 3. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires, they will say, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. Peter gives an amazing prophecy of the opposition that his readers will one day face. Now, one of the most precious doctrines we have in, in Christianity is the return of Christ. It is the blessed hope. And I, I'm sure every single one of us have here have uttered the words, even so come, Lord Jesus. That is what we as Christians are looking forward to because that's why we were made. Why? Why did God do all this anyway? We could go into uh, some, of the, you know, some of the catechisms, you might say. But what is our whole purpose for being? To know God and to love him forever. So to be with him is the ultimate joy of life. Sometimes it's... Well, we're just, we talk about seeing God, being face to face with God. That's the most, that is the most blessed thing that, that we could ever hope or want. And part and parcel to that is the return of the Lord Jesus Christ to take us to be with him. And here, 
Peter lets, lets us in on the fact that there are those who do not uh, have that same joy, that same hope. As a matter of fact, they mock it. They're scorning. And you can hear the scorn in the way that, it, that it's written. Where is the promise of his coming? It's been so long, it's been nearly 2,000 years since he left. Where, how can you possibly believe that, that some guy that died on, on a criminal's cross over 2,000 years ago is still alive and he's going to come back for you? How can you possibly believe that? By the way, the scoffers that make uh, fun of, return, of the return of the Lord Jesus, well, when you read the book of Proverbs, you can find out what, what the Lord thinks of people who scoff and who make fun of the truth. But we won't go there right now. But what's their main motivation? What's their whole purpose in this as it says in the end of verse 3 following their own sinful desires or again as the King James says walking after their own lusts the very thought when you think when you, when you look at this world and you, you hear the, the opposition that the world gives the very thought of being accountable to God for your actions is utterly abhorrent to somebody who wants to live however they, however they feel led. That someday I'm going to have to stand and look eye to eye to, to God, with God, and give an account for everything that I've said, everything that I've done, everything that I think, In reality, that's very scary. When you were a kid and you knew you did something wrong, and I don't know who the disciplinarian was in your family, whether it was your mother or your father, but whoever, the old proverbial, your dad's coming home. How, how, how did you feel as that time approached? That, that's, well, put that on steroids. You'll have to stand before God one day. That's a scary thing. Like the old the passage in the Old Testament. He that made the eye, can he not see? He that formed the ear, can he not hear? There's nothing. No, not the tiniest detail of our lives that God isn't intimately familiar with. And unless you're in Christ, that's a scary proposition. No. What are the scoffers saying? 
Where is the promise of his coming? For ever, since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. Now, of course, these scoffers are not specifically referring to the biblical patriarch because they refuse to rec recognize them. But he's talking as a general reference to human ancestors. At very least, this passage states the, the belief that God has never once interfered with the events and physical processes in the world. That this whole universe is just a, a, the result of a bunch of happy chances that just sort of happened. Therefore, there is no God. There is no fear of, of God ever holding me accountable for anything that I do. But you know, I think Peter's actually getting more specific than that. And although Peter would never have known about this belief or this doctrine, this phrase that is describing, the phrase that he uses, since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. This phrase is describing the main idea behind the what's called the doctrine of uniformitarianism which has provided one of the bases of evolution it's a doctrine and, the, and an idea promoted by Charles Lyell although he did not use that term but he promoted it in the early 1800s and he was an early geologist he wrote uh, a book called The Principles of Geology uh, in the early 1800s. It's a, it was a book that was uh, recently printed and what uh, Charles Darwin took that book with him on his voyage on the Beagle. And he was greatly influenced by it. Uh, but Charles Lyell postulated millions and millions of years of history and based it on this principle that the, same, the, the rate of erosion and deposition of sediment, uh, the rates of continental drift that we see in the world today have always been the same, never changed. So just for an example, if dirt accumulates at a rate of, say, a 1 16th of an inch per year, that's actually a lot. But if it accumulates at that rate, and you see a sedimentary layer 50 feet thick, you can say that it took 16 years to make an inch, 12, 12 more of those time periods to make a foot times 50. So you have 16 times 12 times 50, or 9,600 years to make that 50 foot thick uh, piece of sediment for that sedimentary layer to form. And this whole belief system, and it is a belief system, because there's nothing scientific about it, because you can't observe how the rate of sedimentary deposition over you know, years ago, 
This whole belief system has fallen out of favor even with secular geologists because it doesn't work. Just a few examples. They say, well, if you, again, for fossils, you have a fossil that gets buried and if the fossil, the, the layers of sediment are going, uh, uh, building up at a sixteenth of an inch per year, that fossil, the fossil bones are supposed to lay there in that sediment for 9,600 years until it covers up that fossil. How long does it take for a dead animal to decay into nothing? A week? Then you have things called polystrate fossils, like trees that go through, uh, like a 50-foot tree trunk that goes through various sedimentary layers, particularly in coal seams. You mean that, that tree was standing dead for hundreds of thousands of years? How long does it take for a tree to rot? It just doesn't work. And as I said, not even secular geologists believe in that doctrine anymore. But it did form the basis for evolution because it gave a pseudoscientific explanation for millions of years. But this is a very important principle, and that we stated before. What you believe about history will affect what you believe about the future. If you believe that God never once interfered with, with history, with what's going on, and what did re really, what did Charles Lyell do in teaching this doctrine, he presupposed the flood out of existence. He said, Nothing, no, no big changes, the same sedimentary rates that we see in today's world are the true thousands and thousands and thousands of years ago. There was no global flood. There was no uh, tremendous deluge. Well, it's sort of like standing in the middle of the black forest and say, I don't see any trees here, or I don't see a forest here. I can't see beyond all these trees. There's so much evidence for the, the great flood. It's all around us. But if you believe that God never interfered with the earth, you're, going, you're not going to believe that he will ever, in the future, interfere with the earth. You're not going to believe in the return of Christ. Just like these scoffers. Where is the promise of his coming? All things continue as they were from the beginning of Christ. Everything's the same. Everything goes along at the same rate and the same, in the same way. You know, people come, people go. Yeah. Like the Bible says, uh, from your dust and unto dust you'll return. You look under the bed and somebody's either coming or going. 
But everything stays the same. Oh, really? But if you know that he has and he is working, if you know God is at work, even in our midst right now, then the return of Christ is your blessed hope. What's Peter's response to this, this doctrine? I like the way the King James puts it. For this they are willingly ignorant of. They choose to remain ignorant of these facts. These two very important facts. The English Standard Version says, For they deliberately overlooked this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. What do these people willfully ignore? The evidence for a real creation, a literal creation, and a literal flood. At some point of God's eternal existence, he chose to create this space-time energy continuum. And he chose to bring everything into existence by the very words that he spoke. And I was, earlier in the Sunday school class when I was uh, teaching earlier in this quarter, I was trying to to explain this concept to the kids that God brought everything to existence by speaking it into existence. How do you explain that? All you can say is God is great. God so far surpasses anything that we can imagine. He's He's great. Both this passage and the creation account indicate that water was intimately involved in the creative process. Now there's a lot of speculation of how that happened and, and God's not specific so any any ideas or theories that anybody has uh, pretty much is just that, speculation. But somehow water was very important in the creation. And secondly, the flood, the literal flood, an earth-covering, year-long flood that cataclysmic, cataclysmically, say that fast, cataclysmically destroyed all air-breathing, land-dwelling life outside the ark. It was a judgment for the utter sinfulness and wickedness of humans. And 
And as I said before, Peter states that these people willfully ignore these events. In the depths of their heart, they know better. Certainly, the evidence from the earth around us is better interpreted by a creation flood model rather than a, an evolutionary billions of years model. And you know me, I could sit and talk about that whole su subject for hours and hours and hours. But just to, again, just to give you a little bit of background, I was saved in 1976 and I was an evolutionist. Believed everything about that. And then when I read the Bible, I said, there's no way that what it says in the Bible can be, can, can be, can it be accommodated in, with evolution. They, they're absolutely opposed to each other. Therefore, knowing that God does interfere, quote-unquote, with this world, what can we expect? Verse 7. By the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. The flood last time, the fire next time. Because God does intervene in this world, it's not going to last forever. God will bring an end to what we refer to as a natural course of events. This world of men and women and all that is, that is in it will be subject to the judgment of God by fire. And stop and think about this. Nothing of what we see and know of this world is going to survive. Nothing. Now, put yourself in Noah's shoes. Okay, you, you believed God, you built an ark, the Lord brought all the animals into the ark, and, and you rode out this, this, this uh, flood. Have you ever stopped to think and try to imagine what Noah stepped out into after the flood. He walked. When he entered the ark, the earth was green and lush and warm and pleasant. There's a lot of reasons to believe that the entire earth was like one huge tropical rainforest. One continent, not seven. Although there was a special place that was a special garden, which was off limits, but the whole Everything that you can imagine was, 
was absolutely gorgeous. When he walked off of that ark, nothing was familiar. There were at most maybe a few trees, but they would have just been saplings. All the trees would have been wiped clean. Maybe a few tree stumps sticking out of the ground. It was colder. It was overcast. It was windy. It was rainy. Eventually, the snow came as the earth, as the earth descended into the ice age. And the only life that was left on the earth came out of the ark with him. Worst of all, his family and friends who refused the ark of their salvation were all dead. That's I'm sure you're familiar with the story how that Noah be started a vineyard and, and uh, became drunk on the, on the wine that he created. I think a major part of that is because he was depressed. Can you imagine all the friends, all your loved ones that you knew, that you had witnessed to, that you had tried to persuade, God's going to judge this world, and they're all dead. You ever think he asked himself, why me? Why did the Lord save me? Well, similarly, after the future judgment of God, all that we see and know will be destroyed. Including our family and friends who refuse the ark of their salvation, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's a sobering thought. Peter goes on, Beloved, be not ignorant of what this one thing, that one day is with the Lord as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. Now, if anybody ever uses this verse to justify the idea that the days of creation in Genesis 1 are long ages, you're going to fail the course. That's a very, very common idea and compromise idea saying well if one day is equal to a thousand years then the days of creation must have been long ages well first of all you can't use a verse lifted out of context in the New Testament to modify the plain statements of, the, of a passage in the Old Testament second of all that interpretation ignores the second half of the verse the day is with the Lord is a thousand years, and a thousand years with the Lord is as one day. All Peter is getting at is that God is not subject to the limits, limitations of time like we are. Time is his servant, 
not his master. Have you ever wondered how, well, particularly those of us who are uh, dandelion heads, so to speak, we've, we've, been, we've been around the block a few more times. How often have you said, where does the time go? And the older you get, it seems to go faster. There's just not enough time in the day to be able to do what you want to do. Well, God doesn't have that problem. God's not subject to time. He can work within it, and he does work within it. But like I said, it's his servant, not his master. So what appears to us to be a long time, 2,000 plus years, is inconsequential to God. The reason for this apparent 2,000 year delay in the return of Christ and the judgment that goes with it is so you and I can get saved. The Lord is not slack Concerning his promise, verse 9. Whereas the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Do you not praise the Lord and thank him for the fact that you're saved? That you know that you'll be with him. He delayed the, re you might say delayed from our perspective, the return of Christ to give you that opportunity. Likewise, there are others whom God has chosen that are not yet saved, that must and will get saved before Christ's return. So they can be as thankful as you are. However, in verse 10, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And when the heavens pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Just as in the days of Noah, there will come a day when... The Lord's holy demand for justice will outweigh his mercy and grace. God's judgment will fall, and like in Noah's day, when all outside the, of the ark perished, so all in that future judgment outside of Christ will, will likewise perish. All the works of humans, all our familiar surroundings, all our comforts, all our scientific and technological accomplishments will be destroyed. That's quite a warning for unbelievers, but it's also a warning to us. Because Peter now makes it 
personal to, to Christians. In verse 11, since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening to the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn? We won't have our house. We won't have our car, our furniture, our jobs. So how important are they? Now let's be careful here. Again, balance point. Let's be careful here. Because there is eternal value in how we deal with temporal things. Our possessions can be used for the furtherance of the gospel. Sue opening her house for, for Bible study. A house is just a thing. Someday it's going to burn up, but it's a tool to use for the furtherance of God's kingdom. The church building that we want to build, it's a thing. Someday it's going to be destroyed. But we intend to use it for the furtherance of the gospel in the Mechanicsburg and Silver Spring and Hampton Township area. How we do our various occupations, whether to the best of our abilities as under the Lord or with lazy indolence, has a direct bearing on eternity. Plus, as long as we're in this body, we do have temporal needs. I don't know about you, I'm starting to get hungry. But the thing is, very few of us err by skimping on in, uh, temporal things. Most of us err on going the other direction. If we measure how important something is to us by the time and the money we invest in it, we spend way too much on what has little eternal value. Nevertheless, we according to his promise, look for a new heaven and a new earth. Verse 13. There's another way to measure ourselves. What are your goals and dreams for the future? Do you look forward to a long and rewarding career with a comfortable and economically secure retirement? Or do you see beyond that? Remember what the Lord Jesus said. Where your treasure is, that's where your heart will be also. What you consider valuable. If, you treasure, if your treasure is the Lord in heaven, you'll order your life and activity with eternity in mind. If you work, if not, all you work for, everything you have, will someday be gone.
Lessons for our lives. Number one. On what do we base our beliefs? God has given us his word, the Bible. If we build our beliefs on it, we're building on a solid rock. And the rains came down, and the floods came up, and rains came down, and the floods came up. And the house on the rock stood firm. But if you build your house on the shifting sand of human opinion, your beliefs will soon be destroyed. Number two, I have to speed this up a little bit. Throughout all the ages, and particularly in our day and age, too many Christians have tried to reinterpret the plain statements of God's word to accommodate the changing ideas of human opinion. Scientific theories come and go. The word of God lasts forever. Number three, the word of God plainly states that God created everything in six literal 24-hour days and teaches that those days were about 6,000 years ago. God, with his very own hand, wrote that he created everything in six days in Exodus 20.11. To believe anything else is to call God a liar. Many, and this is what really pains my heart, many good, honest, devoted Christians who love the Lord... have not come to grips with this, who've not, who want to believe something other than God's word. We hold that position true, that God created. God is going to judge this earth and the humans on it. He is not specific when. In fact, when the disciples asked him in Acts 1, 7, and 8, if he was at this time restore the kingdom to Israel, Jesus told them, that's none of your business. It's your business to go out and preach the gospel. And finally, that gospel. The ark of Noah's day is a type of Christ. All that were in that ark were saved from the judgment of God against the sin of this world. So all in Christ will be saved from God's judgment when he comes to judge this world of its sin and rebellion. Are you in the ark? Of Christ, do you know that He saved you from the judgment you deserve? If so, rejoice in Him. Thank Him for holding off His return. If not, feel free to come talk to me after the service. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father,
You've given us your word. It is true. Help us to live that truth. Help us to give you the praise for all things. Thank you for what we appear, see as a delay in the return of Christ so that you can include us in your eternal plan. Thank you, Lord. Work in our hearts according to the need that you know is there. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. You're dismissed.